Son of David. Son of David. Wow. Well, Son of David. We say that a lot. We say it. It's in the Gospels. Son of David. Best thing ever. What does that mean? So let's see. The phrase itself seems to be important. It's part of Eliyahu Hanavi that we would be singing now if we were doing Havdalah, correct? Um, it's found in the daily Amidah, the daily prayers. It's mentioned 14 times in the Gospels alone. You never realized, did you? Interesting. And it, this phrase, if it was just this phrase, this phrase connects Yeshua overtly to the Davidic covenant. A lot of us are really strong on the Abrahamic covenant. A, bunch, a, a few people are strong on the covenant with Noah, the Noahide covenant. Um, people are confused many times about the Mosaic covenant. We have time to get, no time for those. But Davidic covenant, sometimes, not your congregation, because you're, you're brilliant and you have you know, classes and everything. But some congregations never get beyond the first five books of Moses. They don't really look at the Haftorah. They don't have talks on the Haftorah. They don't look at the wisdom books. Um, but there's a whole big wide scripture there prior to the Gospels. And the Davidic covenant is just as important as the other covenants. And you're going, and where would I find this so-called Davidic covenant? One of the most important chapters of any chapter, either testament, the Davidic covenant, which is basically summarized in 2 Samuel 7. 2 Samuel 7 gives David's family the right to rule over Israel eternally. That means it definitely affects yours and my life, at least in the future. It will affect yours and my life. So that's important, but it's hard to fit that into how cool David is. Because once again, and I'm not blaming any of your Shabbat school teachers, they are fine human beings. They, your kids take home the greatest projects that they work on during Shabbat school. No, not you, but, you know, I don't know, congregations in Montana and stuff. We don't learn much about David after we leave Shabbat school. It just doesn't happen. What does it really mean to be David's son? Now, with this, I did this PowerPoint uh, a couple, several months ago, and so... If you thought that Joseph might have a lot of pictures in Google images, just, you know, King David. I know, all different centuries, all different styles of artwork, a tremendous amount of uh, pictures of who David is to various uh, generations of people. And I love this picture. He's like, he's like, you know, running down the temple steps, and he's cool, man, he's cool. And it's obviously a Sunday school uh, book of some kind. It says, a biography for kids, King David. I don't even want to look in that book because I'm afraid of what I would see, and I'm afraid of what I wouldn't see. So when it says, what is it about David's son? Yeshua is David's son, son of David, son of David. 
are we talking about a literal son of David? Because some of those literal sons did not do well. Remember Absalom, Avshalom, remember him? He did not do well. That was not a, that was not a portrait in uh, uh, behaving like a king's son. And yet David loved him. We'll learn more about him in a minute. And Solomon, he did turn out well. Although many people, I, I find that um, believers, you know, both um, uh, Jewish and Gentile believers, sometimes, well, Solomon now, he could have done great, but, and then they list things that they think Solomon did wrong. Have you ever heard that? Solomon, yeah, he's just not so great. Oh, no, he's great. Oh, wives? What about those wives? Yeah, what about those wives? Hmm, I wonder what that is all about. Did he, was that because of sin? Did he sin by taking those wives? Well, you'll ask yourself that later. We're not going to answer that question later. I'm just going to put forward this. When, during this time period, when Israel as a nation really had established a kingship and it had been in power for more than 100 years internationally, and the only reason that we even have Saul, David, and Solomon is because the big powers were not fighting with each other. The big powers in Mesopotamia and Egypt. Mainly those two giant world powers were fighting each other. And somehow Israel was literally in the middle of those fights. And during the 150-so years when they, those two were very weak... That's when Israel got to establish uh, its own king, its own kingship, its own uh, a sort of be a mini, mini dynasty. And so Solomon was tasked with being a leader and a Davidic king on a worldwide stage. And as a large part of the treaties that you must make on the worldwide stage, you had to marry the country you from the country you were making your treaty with. And that was the guarantee of the treaty. So was this just because he loved women that Solomon got married? Because it's almost salacious. It's almost a smutty remark about him and his wives. No, they represent the peace that he brought to that kingdom because he had, if he hadn't married those women, they wouldn't have had the peace that they had for that many years. It's a different take. So we have to get our eyes off the semi-sexual sins that we see in the scripture, and we have to put our eyes on, was he fulfilling what God wanted him to do in his lifetime? And I'm going to say, I think he was. So is there good news and bad news about Solomon? Yes, and I wish we would talk more about the good news about Solomon, because he was highly revered and he had great amounts of wisdom. Does it mean to be David's son? Do we just mean that they come from the same family? That they shared some, you know, Y chromosomes together? If they went on Ancestry.com, you know, Yeshua turns up, you know, being related to David's family. Is that all there is to it? Because I find that people mainly think, yeah, he was related to them. But they don't talk about how that comes through in Yeshua's life. Does it really matter what that means? It's very poetic. You know, the scriptures are always using really nice poetry. And so we shouldn't, like, analyze the poetic things because then they lose their, their gleam and their glitter. So 
we'll just say, yes, he's, he's the greatest son of David. It's really heartwarming, don't you think? And I'm going to say, that's not all there is. That's not all there is. David was a man of war. And I don't mean by that the sea creature. I'm not talking about that. And that's Richard Gere back in the, uh, I think, the 90s, uh, when he was much younger, uh, playing David. And I don't think I ever saw that movie. I've seen scenes from it, but um, I understood there was good and bad about that movie. Have people seen that uh, Richard Gere's, well, you know, you should have a film festival and, and then critique based on the scriptures. It'd be great. He fought and killed Goliath. We, we're not going to sugarcoat it. He killed people. We all know about Goliath. He's a big deal. When you're 10 years old, he's a big deal. It's Goliath, man. It's a picture. Wow, it's, it's the greatest. He's like a superhero before there were superheroes. Yeah? He's like an approved superhero uh, for our kids. But here's another thing. Do you know what he was doing? So we know. Okay, so he... Saul asked him to come and play for him his harp and sing his songs, which was very nice for David. And he hung out at the royal court for a while, right? And he got to be really, really close friends with Jonathan, the king's son. Except then what happened? What happened that messed that up? Saul. What was going on with Saul? He was something, something upset Saul. And he couldn't get rid of it. And it's almost like he has a schizophrenic personality. You don't know which Saul is going to show up. David's never sure when he goes to do his song thing if Saul's going to be thrilled, if Saul's going to be quiet, or if Saul's going to drive him from the palace in a rage. And we see, in fact, there's pictures that I could have put up there of Saul driving David uh, from the palace uh, in a rage. So we know about that. We also know that Saul chased him literally around the countryside, didn't he? Chased him around the countryside. So if you tracked, you, if you took the time, I'll summarize for you. If you took the time to go into the book of 1 Samuel and you looked, or, uh, and you looked and you tracked where David is running from King Saul, who's after him with some, some kind of small army, he runs here. And then he runs from there, and he runs over here, and then he runs over here, and then he runs over here, and then he runs over here, always eluding Saul. And there's that famous scene that some people, it, it is somewhat humorous, where Saul comes into a cave where David's hiding. And so David goes further inside the cave. Saul doesn't even know he's there, does he? And then what does Saul proceed to do? He proceeds to, you know, take a leak. And he steals Saul's. You drop and says, I notice what I have, Saul. I could have killed you there, but I didn't, did I? That tells you something about David right there. He had every chance to eliminate Saul. Because what does David know about who will eventually be king? What does he already know at this point? He, there was a strange ceremony, wasn't there, when he was smaller. And what happened in that strange ceremony? with Samuel. And what did Samuel do? Anointed him king. What? Well, that would be, seem to be an important plot point. So why isn't David king now? Because it's not his time. Would that be correct? Fair enough. It's not his time. Yes, but he, he's supposed to be king. So he's the king, and yet he's not yet. 
the king, and David somehow lives with that. David somehow, that would be a very strange situation. I have the right to be something. I know I've been chosen by God, but I'm not going to rush it. I'm going to wait until it's the correct time. So in his running to and fro from the king who's in a certain way slightly off his rocker, he runs from here to there. In the same time, he gathers a small group of people, a small group of, let's say, men. I don't think it might be only men, but it's men that we know about. A small group of, of trusted friends who form like his posse, like his protection. Um, and they fought, they're with him as he goes and runs from here to there. Pretty soon, the here and there running from Saul turns into a business opportunity for David. He and his band of, of uh, musketeers would go to villages, especially in, in the southern part of, the, of uh, Israel, in, in Judah probably, mainly, and say, the Philistines are going to come and take your land. They're going to come and steal everything. They're going to oppress you. If you'll pay, pay my small army here some money, we will protect your land and your property. What would we call that nowadays? Sometimes the mafia does that. What do, they, what do we call it when the mafia does it? It's protection money, isn't it? Yeah, it's not cool when the mafia is doing it, right? They'll visit you. You've seen the movie. They'll visit you. You knock on the door. Uh, and they go, you know, we're, we're here to protect you. And the business owner says, I don't need protection. And then they throw a brick through the window. Now you do. You know, pay up. Or worse will happen to you. That's cool. It's not cool when the, when, uh, the mafia comes. But what David and his uh, sidekicks were doing was helpful. It was helpful. He was enabling small groups and small landowners to keep their lands without it being stolen or being oppressed by the Philistines. Um, so he sold protection, if you would like that. And you're going, what? Did you, have you, any of you seen the, the uh, it just was remade recently, The Magnificent Seven, either in the original or in this recently remade one? where the band of strange, strange group of guys comes to town to protect the small town from the gangsters, from the, from the horrible cowboy army that wants to uh, steal all the land from you. No, you people don't go to movies? Is that what they... <laughs> yeah, of course they do. And they would be their bodyguards, which is it's important. That's important. But, and they did that partially when it, the problem was solved. But then they started going into this... Sort of a business arrangement where they would help those small landowners. They made, they made it work for them after Saul was not really that much of a, a threat. He conducted, after he was king, full-scale war against what I would call the cousins, the cousins of Jacob. Edom, which was founded by Esau. He's a cousin, isn't he? My mom used to say, kissing cousins. He cheated me that you liked them, that they were related to you in some way. Uh, Edom, once again, related to Lot. Uh, Ammon, once again, these are kiss and cousin countries. Saul brought, I mean, uh, sorry, David brought them into line. Saul was, didn't even deal with them. He was busy enough with the 12 tribes. But David brought them into line. 
And then Solomon uh, sat on the throne and uh, enforced the arrangements that David had made, the arrangements that David made because he defeated these small nations. They're not giant nations, small cousin nations. Um, that was part of the warfare that he waged. As a matter of fact, it's very accurate to say that David completed the work that Joshua began. Remember Joshua? We don't talk a lot about him either. But Joshua did a great, great thing. It was very difficult for him also. He has a wonderful backstory. But Joshua, remember, they, 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 came, across, they came across the Jordan River. They were over there. Moses went to be the Lord, and then they had to cross the Jordan River, right? right? And um, they crossed the Jordan River, and then they did, I think, it, they went northern campaign, and then they did southern campaign, then they did central campaign, and Joshua says, meet me at Shechem, because we're going to have a dedication, and I'm going to retire and go to my home, go to my family home which has now been within the tribe of which tribe was Joshua in and which tribe would he be living? Not Judah. I'll give you a hint related to Joseph. Yes, he was from the tribe of Ephraim. Remember, we have no real tribe of Joseph because Joseph got two tribes. That is part of the deal. Joseph was the suffering son, but he got two tribes through Joseph's two children, which he formally adopted in that one of the last scenes that you see when, when Jacob is still alive. So you have Ephraim and Manasseh. Those are the two grandchildren that he adopts as his own children, which means that uh, Joseph's family gets a double portion. Very ingenious how that works, actually. Um, Joshua was from the tribe of Ephraim. And that carried a lot of weight in later years. Because Ephraim as a tribe, after even Joshua retired and then died, they thought that they should be in charge. They thought they were in charge. And they would always point to Joshua. Believe it? Are you happy with that reasoning about why they should be in charge? It's complicated. But David completed the work of Joshua, because even though at, in the book of Joshua it says everything was okay and hunky-dunky, yeah, except we know it wasn't. There were certain places that were not taken. There were certain cities that were not uh, tied down. Remember, the job after Joshua was there to be in charge, he said, I'm going home. I'll be serving the Lord of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. As for, as for you guys, you know, do what you think is right. But my family, we will remain faithful. And he goes home. And some of you have that little plaque on your wall about the farewell of, says Joshua. So what were they supposed to do? Each tribe was supposed to clean up within its region themselves. So Benjamin should have cleaned up in their region. Manasseh should have cleaned up in their region. Uh, Simeon should have cleaned up in their region. They all had their jobs to do. They didn't get done. It didn't get done. David finished that job. David cleaned up the Philistine problem. David fought the cousins. David made sure that these places that had still, they were still left in charge of the Perizzites, the Hittites, you know, the termites. He made sure 
that they were all wrapped up. That was a mighty work he did, and it was a benefit to the nation. And once again, yet another thing that David did personally to make the nation stronger so that when Solomon got to be in charge, he had a solid nation there. He was ruling and had a good system over this nation. So David was a man of war, not in the either the big fat ship from the 1800s or in the sea creature. David was the greatest king Israel has ever known to this day. He unified the tribes. He consolidated the nations. He kicked out all those uh, foreigners, or actually the, the native inhabitants, and made it safe for Israelis to be there. He subdued those cousin nations to the east. He wrote psalms. We all knew that. He wrote psalms. They're wonderful. It's the one place I, if I am, if there have been times in my life, maybe you too, where it's like your world is crashing down. Where do you turn? Psalms. Well, why would you turn there? Because David understood, right? He has happy things. He says happy things. He sings about happy things. He th he's very grateful. He thinks about grateful things. But he also sings about the, the tough times when everyone's against him, when he has no friends. He was the guy who saw a great little town, a great little town that was full of Jebusites. And he thought it was pretty great. He thought it'd be easily defensible. And he thought it wouldn't belong to any tribe. It was without a tribe, much like Washington, D.C. What was the deal with Washington, D.C.? It didn't belong to any state, did it? It was its own deal, right? You're not nodding. Do you know these American things? Yeah, okay. Yeah. It was its own deal, correct? It's still its own deal. It's not part of a state. It's its own district. Same with Jerusalem, because it hadn't been taken by any Jews until David and his small group of mighty men in a, in a very wonderful uh, takeover, internal takeover, through the water system, climbing up through the water systems so they don't, they don't have to batter the walls down, which would be impossible. They have to sneak in from the center side, and you can go to that water system today, and you can hang out there, and you can walk through that tunnel that was made after David's time. He was bright, and he surrounded his, himself with bright ice. He captured it and made it into a capital city that didn't belong to anybody. It didn't belong to any tribe. It belonged to David. He was one of the great folk heroes of the nation. You know, maybe I'm getting old. I know I'm getting old, but uh, when I was a kid, we used to like sit around the campfires every now and then. Sometimes we'd sing, but sometimes people would tell stories uh, of famous heroes of the past. And David was one of those heroes that the Jewish people thought was the greatest thing since sliced bread. They thought it was the greatest thing since challah. So it was great. He's a great folk hero. He's the one that um, little boys and girls would look up to. They admired him tremendously. They bragged on him year after year. He's a hero. He's a superhero in their eyes. Another person that we almost never think about after or, after or before Hanukkah is Judah Maccabee. He was one of those superheroes to them. He was a guy from a small town 
and his family defeated the biggest army in that part of the world through guerrilla warfare, sort of. At least the children of Israel won. They won that war against the Syrians, the Syrians who worship Greek gods. And that's the story we tell at Hanukkah. So you'll be doing that pretty soon. Judah Maccabee is a great, great hero. He was another hero that they would tell stories. And this is the time when Judah did this. And this is how Judah uh, escaped this problem. And this is how they figured out, how the brothers figured out what to do. In, in war colleges in Israel today, they are still studying a battle or two that Judah planned. They brought elephants, for Pete's sake, into Israel. They were so spooked out by the Jewish people, they brought elephants to scare them. Amazing, when you think about it. Amazing. Judah Maccabee, a guerrilla warfare, is incredibly difficult. They did a great job. We won't even say how they finally won the war. Let's not even go there. That's sort of sad news. So we'll, we'll just be going on. What do you think about, if we say King David, what do you think? Goliath. He's, oh, our hero. He's great. He's strong. He's brave. Braver than all his, his older brothers. He's the youngest. Braver than old King Saul, who's a little bit afraid in the story. You think about him fleeing from Saul, because Saul was, I think, certifiably, and this is a technical term, nuts. Or maybe you think about Bathsheba. She comes up almost either first or second. Usually first is Goliath, and second is Bathsheba. How long do I have? <laughs> what was going on with that? Here's one thing that should be you should understand very clearly. When David saw her bathing, he was not... He was not trailing her. He was not sneaking around looking in people's windows. He was not out on the hunt to find a new girlfriend. David lived at the top of the, it's not a mountain, but back then it was more of a mountain of Mount Zion. He lived at the highest point. And he could look down on the uh, homes down that are spread forth, and they're, they're like stair steps. So there'd be homes all down the hill, and he could see their roofs. By minding his own business and going out in his balcony, he could look down on the roofs of his subjects there in Jerusalem. And one day, he was minding his own business in his palace, and he sees something. She's bathing, which was a normal thing to do for these people in the summer, to bathe on the roof. So David was not looking for trouble or looking for love in the wrong places. He happened to see her. And we sort of know really well what happens after that, don't we? That is part of the story we do read and they do talk about because once again, it has to do with racy topics. But from that point on, David did not do what was righteous, did he? Then it was just the slippery, really bad slippery slope down because of her. And um, I won't go into all the details. You can read it if you want to. It's not a happy story. David, because of his uh, wanting her, does really unspeakable things and plots and plans really bad stuff with his generals in order to make her his own, doesn't he? 
As a matter of fact, when the husband is not cooperating with the scheme to uh, come back and, and uh, rectify the problem that Bathsheba is pregnant and she hasn't seen her husband in several months, so the plan is get the husband back there so that he can have a three-day leave, and then they're, okay, we're all good. Everything's covered up, not a problem now. Oh, except he never goes home. He never goes home to be with his wife on his three-day leave now. They have to kill him. Of course they have to kill him. You know, I don't think in these terms. Do you think in these terms? I never think in these terms, but, you know, I, that's why I watch movies. I get to see other people think in those terms, I guess. And so what does he do? He does something shameful. It's shameful, isn't it? What does he do? He's got to die. So he has to instruct his, the general who works for him. Remember, her husband is a soldier in David's army. He has to tell one of his generals to make sure that soldier gets killed in battle. It's not a pretty sight, is it? It's really disgusting when you think about it. But does he get killed? Yes, he does. Do he and Bathsheba get married? Yes, they do. What about that baby? That's a wonderful story. It's heartbreaking, but it's also wonderful. What about the baby that comes because of this terrible uh, set of uh, decisions in David's life? He does, doesn't he? he the, the baby dies, right? Right? Which you feel bad for the baby. It's not the baby's fault, once again, right? Um, it's, it's very sad. But that story, sometimes that story gets preached on where David is crying and praying to God, please save the baby, please save, I know, you, I, I want you to save Bathsheba, but I also want you to save this baby. And does God save that baby? Not in the way that David was probably hoping for. God, God did heal that baby, but not exactly in the way David was asking for. Did you figure that out? And so what does he do? He was just in an, he was so torn up and so sad and so upset as he's walking around the, the palace. And then, the, I mean, his help, his servants don't even want to tell him any bad news. They think he's going to go over the edge. That's how upset he is about this. And uh, so what happens when the baby dies? He has a very strange response, doesn't he? What does he do? He bays, he stops mourning, he starts moping around, and the, and the servants in the palace are going, what is he doing now? This is not what they expected, correct? They expected even worse. They expected, you know, slamming into the walls and breaking down doors. No, he's calm. And when somebody says, how can you be so calm about this? this ah, hey, there I am. I lost myself for a minute. Uh, David says what? It's a wonderful. He says, the baby will not come to be with me, but I will go to be with him. Did David understand about eternal life? He did understand. Well, how did he understand? He just did. He did. David had a very, very good friend who was also his royal prophet. And his name was Natan. His name was Nathan. And what does Nathan talk about with David? to get him to understand the gravity of what's happened. How does he, he literally wakes David up spiritually. He says, I have a story for you, David. And David goes, uh-huh. And Nathan talks about the, what is it, the rich guy who steals the poor little lamb that was the only possession of a, of a poor farmer and takes it for his own. And what's David rea David's reaction to this parable? 
bring me that guy, that rich guy who stole the sheep, and I will take care of him. And what does Nathan say? It's you. This is really good dramatic stuff. It's you, David. It's you. So what should David do because of that? What does he end up doing? He went to sacrifice and admit his sin and sacrifice on behalf of his sin. He admitted his, he admitted his deeds. He admitted what he had done. Do you think David knew he was going to be with that baby when all was said and done? Or was he unsure if he's going to see the baby again? Oh, he says, I will see that. I will see him again. I will go to be with him. How does he know? How is he so sure that the sin was forgiven? Well, that statement tells you right there. Sometimes people think that um, atonement in the Old Testament really wasn't quite enough for the Old Testament people. It wasn't really quite going to get them into what we might consider through the heavenly gates. But very special times you see Will we see David in heaven, even though he committed murder? I believe we will. Why? Because he has a history of repentance. Even that must have been, I would assume, I don't know every single sin that David committed, but I think that Bathsheba thing, that was probably the worst. That was probably the worst thing because it was a whole series of misdeeds, wasn't it? It was a series of, I don't care, I'm going to do this anyway. Yeah, that never turns out well. I don't care what God says, I'm going to do this because I want to. Because I'm the king, I get to do this. And we sometimes, admit it, we sometimes feel that way. We'd like to be the king, and then we would do this, 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 and this. If only we had the power, we would do that. And David did have the power, and there came a time when he abused his power, didn't he? So, seducing Bathsheba, then killing her husband, that wasn't a good thing. That's what people tend to remember about David the Goliath thing, the Bathsheba thing, and also the Psalms. Those are the big three that people remember. They forget all the other stuff. They forget the way David was in other areas of his life at other time periods. But if you read in First and Second Samuel, you'll see the kind of relationship he had with his, with his group of men there, his mighty musketeers, with um, his subjects, with the people who worked in the palace, you'll see those stories. And he was quite a man. He was not perfect, but he was quite a man. Now, let's get back to David was a man after God's own heart. We know that verse. He was a man after God's own heart. And it's mentioned in 1 Samuel 13 and also in Acts 13. So it must be right because it's in both it's in both the Old and New Covenants, correct? I love that picture. Don't you love this picture of uh, older David? It, I just think it's uh, very interesting to picture these Bible characters as they got older. I don't know why I would want to do that. Why would I want to picture Bible characters when they get older? I don't know. I just look in the mirror and I think, you know, Bible characters got older too. Usually, usually when we say, what does it mean to be a man after God's own heart? God loved David right? Heart, love. God loved David, except that's not really what it says in that language. Because in America, or let's say in Western civilization in general, the center of your love, as we find out every Valentine's Day, is where? In your heart. That's where your love comes from. That's where you love people's in your heart. Um... 
However, in biblical times, your heart was not really where you love people from. It was where you thought. In your heart, you think things. That's what you don't think with your heart. You think inside yourself, and that's labeled your heart. Your heart is not the center of love so much as your mind, your knowledge. Now, where did I get all these words? Well, they have a fabulous new free thing that's on the internet. It's called Safaria. And when you go to Safaria, and it's related to Sefer, meaning book, you get the Hebrew scriptures. You can, it's a, da a database that's all searchable. It's all free. You can get Talmudic. You can type in a word and get every single Talmudic instance of that word. And uh, so if you do that with the term that's used there in Hebrew, uh, ignore the Aleph up there. I was beginning to learn, learn how to use this one keyboard, but you have um, Balev uh, Yishvo. Yishvo. And here's what Safario will say. Your mind, the center of your mind, where you think from. Your knowledge, your knowledge is kept in your heart. Your thinking is thinking. Reflection, this is where you reflect on things in your heart. Your memory is in your heart. And it goes on to talk. If you look up more um, places where this phrase is used, you find also... In your heart, you find your inclinations, that you're inclined, you favor doing things, that's in your heart. You resolve things in your heart, that's where your, your resolutions come from. You determine in your heart, in other words, uh, when you decide you are going to do something, in biblical terms, that comes from your heart. In Sepharia, the last thing, it says, that's where your conscience is. That's where your little Jiminy Cricket in your mind telling you, do that or don't do that. How many remember Jiminy Cricket? Sir, I loved Jiminy Cricket when I was a kid. I had a puppet of Jiminy Cricket. I thought he was the greatest. I don't know why now looking back. He was green. I think that, that was it. But he, he was Pinocchio's conscience, wasn't he? That was his heart. So you can see that it's a little different from what we normally we think of the heart as your love area. Yeah, not back then. This is where your brains was. What does this phrase mean in the Tanakh? I'll ask you, what areas in the human body signify human characteristics? Now, I know we have medical definitions. I know that in your bloody pumper in there, there are no thoughts. But I'm just saying, this is the way body metaphors in cultures serve. So um, name another part of your body where something might be centered where it's not really centered, but it would be said to be centered. In your, thank you, because nobody said it the last time I gave this talk. In your guts, what, do you, what happens in your guts? You feel things, don't you? You feel very powerful things. And I would say a lot of times, they're bad, aren't they? It's like, oh no, no, you, know, you feel it. People are going, no, they're fine. No, it's in your gut, isn't it? I feel it in my gut, something's gonna happen. Could be something nice, but I don't know. So, the center of your mind and intellect, in today's terms, is your brain, correct? If I only had a brain, right? I would think great thoughts. He says, I will think great thoughts. I'd be a great thought thinker. And they give him a diploma. The wizard gives him a diploma at the end because he's a great brain. That would be nowadays. Back then, it was your heart. Your heart had your intellect.
Nowadays, your heart has romantic feelings and love, but in Bible times, it was your mind and your intellect. Nowadays, the guts have very strong opinions about whether something is true or not true, don't they? Is that really true to a doctor? No, 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 no. But it's true in our way of speaking. In the scriptures, it wasn't your guts, it was your kidneys. You felt feelings in your kidneys to warn you about things. I guess you haven't felt your kidneys lately, have you? Not too many. But that's the expression they would use instead of gut. They would use, see how it's different. It's different. And the way we would interpret these words may not just be exactly the way they're thinking about these words. Why is this important when you think about King David? Why is this difference important? Why does it make a difference what you think about a man after God's own heart? And by the way, what does the after mean? That's not in there either. It means, and I, it means David understood God. It means he understood why God did things. That would be quite a great amount of knowledge to have, wouldn't it? Why did God do that? And David would have an idea. His brain comprehended God's ways. His brain comprehended. He understood God. He had correct thoughts about God. That's a whole sort of a different realm, right? Very interesting. He had wisdom about God's actions. He wisely understood why God did what he did, which seemed to be a quality that he passed on to Solomon, his wisdom and his good brain. The problem with Bathsheba, he did not apply all these qualities in the incidents with Bathsheba, did he? No, that's even worse. That's worse than if he didn't have any all this wisdom, right? Because he had all this and still he fell for her. He fell for her. And I'm going to ask you, did David understand that he was forgiven for what he had done? Yes, he did. He did. So this wisdom and this understanding of God that other people might have had to a certain extent, but he showed he was the best at this. So now what do Yeshua and David have in common? Number one, Yeshua, like David, understood God the best of any other person in his time. Is that a fair thing to say? He, understand, he understood what God wanted and why God wanted it. And he shared his wisdom with his followers, didn't he? The followers got it goofed up half the time, didn't they? No, and, and Yeshua would go, no, you're, you're sort of on the wrong track there. This is what God really wants. Remember him saying that a lot? Yeah, yeah, that's not what God really wants. This is what God really wants. Number two, David had his band. They're called mighty men. They are called mighty men. And Gideon also had mighty men, a group, a trusted group who surrounded him, a trusted personal army who conducted brave quests together, who roamed around the country helping the downtrodden. Gideon had this before, David did, and Yeshua had his band of mighty men, right? And if you track Yeshua and his band of mighty men and how they went from here to there all around the countryside, you're going to see the same type of map as David and his guys. Here, then here, then here, then here, then here, then here. Same exact. Almost, almost looking like if you track the motion of a, of a pinball in a pinball machine. That's what their tail 
says that they went around to different places serving people, serving people, and helping where they could. And I don't want to leave this out. It's extremely important, even though we have the whole Bathsheba thing. David, let's talk about David first. David had incredibly rich relationships with different women in his life. And get your minds out of the gutter. He could, he could tell a quality person. And he would have relationships with various types of women. And some of them went well, and some of them went, did not go well. But he appreciated what women did and what women said. And we're, we're told about several different kinds of relationships that um, David had, not just with Bathsheba. There's that story about Abigail. Abigail, what's up with Abigail? That's a great story. When David and his mighty men were selling protection to a farm, remember? And they come up to the gate and they knock on and say, hi, we can help protect you. And the husband comes out. By the way, his name is Fool. His name is Fool. His name might have been changed to protect the dope that he was. Yeah, and he says, no, thank you, go away. Get out of here. What's wrong with you people? Shove up. Abigail comes that night, doesn't she, to the camp. What does she bring? Oh, she brings, she brings food, gifts. What does she want? We need this. My husband's an, he doesn't say my husband's an idiot. I'm filling it in, in the margin. We need you. There we go. A little subtle, but yeah, you're right. He's an idiot. We need you. And when the husband finds out he was so happy that his wife was so smart and saved their farm, what happened when he found out? That was it. He had a stroke. Yeah. Wasn't good, was it? Wasn't good for him. But what did David think about her? She was great. And what did he do? He married her. He knew she's quality. She's brave. She's resourceful. She knows what's important. And she's hospitable. So really, a great all-around woman. It's, it's a very smart move. She's a great woman. She probably didn't, she wasn't happy with that fool anyway. I'm just guessing. Just guessing. Many encounters and relationships with different kinds of women. We know that's true about Yeshua, don't we? We're told about conversations that he has with women that are somewhat surprising, aren't they? As a matter of fact, you know, uh, many, many teachers now teach that this in itself was sort of shocking, that he spent time chatting in, in detail and, it, and with, with great gravity with women who would come up to him or were around him, or that he would meet on his way with his mighty men. Um, he was a great appreciator of women. And uh, my thing that I always think of, if you can think of a woman who had a conversation with Yeshua, I'm going to say that 85% of the time, you'll find that conversation in Luke. Dr. Luke recorded a lot of these conversations that Yeshua had with women. He just for some reason, oh, I remember that conversation. It's in Luke. Almost all the time, it's in Luke. So Dr. Luke picked up on this theme without hitting us over the head with it. He shows us that, that Yeshua talked and reasoned and listened to women and wanted to help them in their needs, which is very gratifying. Now, I have a side note of Proverbs 31, because this, you know, don't tell other people. But sometimes I like to make trouble. Did you figure that out about me? He, he figured it out about me a long time ago. He sort of likes it if I make trouble. 
Sometimes we make trouble together, and then we run away and laugh. I like to think that. But anyway, nothing too shocking. Here's what I learned a long time ago. How does, I know the women know this, how does that famous passage begin that is found in Proverbs 31? A who, who can find, a what? Uh-huh. Who, so what is it in English? What do you usually say? Boy, you're afraid. A virtuous woman usually, isn't it? A virtuous woman. That's what the way it's usually translated. Except Marcy's correct. In Ishat Chayil, the literal translation, like we had mighty men of God, mighty woman of God. She's not virtuous. She's a mighty woman of God. This needs to be talked up. It needs to be talked up. It's there. But they just want to make sure that you don't get too full of yourselves. We, you know, women get a little full of ourselves and like to make trouble. So I'll admit, I like to make trouble. You're an ishrat chayil. And if your husband says those things about you, he likes you the way you are. A mighty woman of God. Almost as great as Wonder Woman. Almost. Wonder Woman in, in the real world. She does it all, doesn't she? And her family thinks she's never at home and they really hate her. Her husband's mad. She, he doesn't make, she doesn't make dinner. Is that what it says? No. They think she's the greatest. She's the mighty woman of the God, just like those men, just like the disciples. It's a great, great phrase. Don't forget it and spread the word. Both Yeshua and David were the ultimate examples of humility, the ultimate examples of humility. They did not seize what they knew belonged to them. They didn't say, I deserve this, therefore I must have it now. They were patient. They waited for the correct time to lay claim to what rightly belonged to them all along. All along. They should have just said, okay, there's enough of this craziness, so I'm taking over because I've been told I can, and you all need to you know, clear out, and I, now I'm in charge. Does either one of them do that? No, as a matter of fact, David does the opposite, doesn't he? When he's told that Saul is dead, he says, Glory be, I've been waiting a long time. i got to call up my guys. He's devastated. He's devastated. If Saul had treated you the way that he treated David, would you be devastated? Or would you have sung, ding dong, the witch is dead? (laughs) I myself probably would have been halfway, ding dong, the witch is dead. Now I can do what I want. No, that was not his first response. Even though he knew he was king. But he didn't usurp that. This is what we know about Yeshua, and the greatest commentary on that is in Philippians 2. He didn't grab for his kingship. His mighty men kept saying, Yeshua, when are we doing the war? When is it happening? When are you going to claim your throne? We know you should be on the throne. We know we have to get the Romans out. We know we have to get the the, uh, Sadducees out. You should be in there. Let's go for it. Let's go. The very last night of Yeshua's life, Peter is ready to start the fight, isn't he? He's ready. What does Yeshua have to do? Has to clean up the mess that he made because, no, this is not about the war. This has nothing to do with the war. And is that because Peter's dumb? No, it's because they understood it wasn't the right time. And Yeshua knew all along it's not the right time, even though his disciples kept saying, is it time now? Are you ready now? When is the army coming? Are you bringing in the angels? Because we want to go. Let's go. We're ready. 
got our sword here. No, Peter, no, not now. What does David say? I'm not going to depose Saul, not now. It's not right. Commonality in their attitude about they were rightfully king, and yet they did not seize that opportunity. And this greatest example, I'm going to leave you with this. The greatest example, and it's in this picture, although the picture looks a little washed out right now, but it's a great picture of this. There is a set of scenes in 2 Samuel uh, 15 and 16, and I would urge you, if you've never read that part of 2 Samuel, I urge you to see what happens here. Here's the summation. Absalom, you remember that son who had the problem with his sister, uh, starts plotting and planning to get rid of dad, David, so that he can take over the kingdom. See how this is opposite of the way David was? Av Shalom, his name is, my father is peace. Yeah, well, meanwhile, Av Shalom is getting together with his buddies, and they're going to kick out dad and put Av Shalom on the throne. Fabulous. And they're plotting and planning. And guess what? Dad hears about it. And it's pretty serious because uh, Av Shalom is going around the country and getting more and more people uh, in his little army that he's got. And they're going to come into Jerusalem. And David's in his palace. And he hears what Av Shalom is ready to do. And so David says, get all the horsemen up on their horses. Get everybody some weapons. And we're going to fight to the finish, says David. What does he say? I can't bear it if Jerusalem is destroyed. I can't. I cannot fight for Jerusalem, okay? I thought I wouldn't cry, but this might be one of those places. I want to save Jerusalem. It's all about God's city. I'm leaving town. And the palace goes, what? I'm leaving town. I'm only taking a few people with me. So I recommend everybody vacate the palace and I'll be leaving. Please do not come with me, he says. Do not come with me. A few people go with him, and for the next several uh, verses, you see this long walk of David leaving his palace, walking out toward the eastern gate, because he's going to go to the area of the Mount of, of, Mount of Olives. That's the way, way he's leaving Jerusalem, in order for Absalom to come in, in order for the city to be saved. And as he goes along, he meets people on the way, and, and he speaks with them. He either tells them they should do something, or he, he recommends uh, this, or he says, I'm sorry, or he says, I appreciated what you did, and continues walking. He sees individuals on this walk, and he talks to them, until finally he's basically by himself, leaving town. And that's a picture of this. So you see the soldier, he's on that donkey by himself, and the soldier is there, um, possibly one of Absalom's soldiers, seeing David go and leave the city that he built and he loved. Well, what happened? Well, you should read the story. Interesting what happens to Absalom after all this. He was pretty successful. So the comeuppance was, well, how did he die? How did Absalom die? What happened to make him die? It's very strange. Yeah. He was riding on a donkey. And his hair got caught in a tree, and he hung himself. Spooky. The king's son. Spooky, wasn't it? So David did come back and re-enter the palace and uh, went ahead with his rule for the next several years. Luke. Luke has the story of Yeshua after his trial. And what does he have to do after his trial? 
He has to walk out of Jerusalem under armed guard, doesn't he? Does he see people on the way? Yeah, people are watching him, aren't they? And what do the people do? The same thing they did for David. It says they lined the streets and they wept for David. They didn't want him to go. They lined the streets and wept for the son of David, who they also did not want him to go. Those two scenes, unbelievable parallels in those lives. So when we say that Yeshua is the son of David, yeah, they shared DNA, but they shared attitudes. They shared qualities in their minds and in their their emotional centers. They shared ministries in the same way. They performed the same functions. They called themselves mighty men who surrounded them and helped them as they traveled around. They refused to sacrifice the city of Jerusalem for their own gain. They said, I'm willing to give it up, but you get the feeling, I'll be back later. And they did not seize the rightful throne that was theirs. It wasn't the right time. It wasn't the right time. Even though other people said, now's a good time, now's a good time. Right now, today, would be next Tuesday, perfect time. No, not yet, not yet. So, son of David, the man after God's own heart, indeed. Definitely Yeshua and David are in a class by themselves. Thanks.